and welcome back to the Martial Arts Mania Podcast. I'm your host, AJ, and today, rather than being joined by my usual co-host, the ruggedly good-looking Gavin, I instead had the chance to interview a very special individual. This man is a martial artist, an author, a researcher, a professor, a travel show host, a professional MMA fighter, a linguistic guru, a proud veteran. He's a scholar who has multiple MBAs in business administration and the Chinese economy. He has his master's in education. He has a PhD in wrestling from the Shanghai University of Sports. He has spent the last 20 years in Asia and is currently based out of Mongolia. But most importantly, and probably his greatest accomplishment, he is my very good friend, Dr. Antonio Grichefo, a.k.a. the Brooklyn Monk. Antonio is currently visiting family in New York, and he was kind enough to take some time out of his very busy schedule to do an interview with me. It was a lot of fun for us because although we chat all the time online, we haven't actually talked on the phone or caught up in a very long time, and we haven't seen each other uh, in over five years. So we got to reminisce a little bit about our training together in China and Thailand and a lot of our experiences since then. We actually started off our conversation on my usual podcast recording program. Uh, It crashed once. We started up again. It crashed a second time. Luckily for me, I have learned in this remote podcast recording game, it is always good to have a backup plan, which I did. So we switched programs, but unfortunately, the first 10 minutes of our conversation was completely lost. But that's okay. It was mostly us just shooting the breeze and laughing and catching up on stuff. So where this conversation begins is right when I ask him to tell his backstory, where it all began. So I hope you guys enjoy this very special episode. We'll be back again later in the week with another one of our usual episodes. But for now, here is my Italian brother from another mother, Antonio Grichefo, the Brooklyn Monk. Enjoy. So, beginnings. Antonio, let's hear it. All right. So, I started martial arts. I was 12 years old. I was 1979. I was, my family's from New York City, but I was living in Tennessee. And I started at the American School of Empty Hand Fighting in Bluntville, Tennessee. And our teacher taught us to fight. And in 1979, there weren't a lot of people that were actually fighting. Taekwondo was really big. And then there was point fighting karate. And kickboxing was a very minor. I mean, you're you're like the aficionado on kickboxing history the way I am on, you know, wrestling. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, in 1979, it was very little. I guess, like, Benny the Jet and those guys existed. Well, but for we sure. And so I mean, they did, that, but yeah. At that point, because you're uh, so you're you're born in New York first, but then you ended up in Tennessee. So you said it was like 1977? 79. 79. So yeah, and even actually that region where you were, kickboxing was definitely up and coming, and you had guys specifically coming out of say uh, Oklahoma, like, uh, Dale Apollo cook. You had, uh, Jerry, the golden boy triple coming out of Kentucky, but a lot of these guys had to travel to specific States in order to train it. So for example, if I'm not mistaken, Jerry Trimble had to leave Kentucky and go to Georgia because that was right. like where the one kickboxing gym was, or you went to Florida because Florida was, had a huge kickboxing. There was so scene. little, there was so little kickboxing that when I 
told my father's friend, he goes, goes, what are you doing? I go, I'm doing kickboxing. He goes, what is kickboxing? And I go, well, it's like boxing, but you're allowed to kick. And he goes, you're not allowed to kick in boxing. <laughs> you're like, yeah, I, I get that. I get that. But this is a special sport. But uh, yeah, so depending, and people also have to forget, this was still a time, and you and I have discussed this, just uh, you were actually the one that informed me about this, about how kind of the, uh, what you can say, almost the dissolving of different uh accents around America, a lot of that had to do with the advent of cable TV, which at this time was just beginning. So uh, in actuality, not everyone had the same access to everything. Yeah, we didn't have cable yet. I mean, cable didn't come to that part of East Tennessee until probably 82, right? Probably 1982, we got cable. So yeah, there was a huge difference in the accents and a huge difference in the information availability. So our, yeah, our martial arts school did Kickbox. He called it American Kung Fu and uh, sort of the philosophy and things was a lot. Sorry. What? Oh, he talked. He talked a lot about, uh, you know, Shaolin Temple and um, a lot of it came from like Jeet Kune Do, you know, philosophies and from the TV show Kung Fu. And, you know, a lot of those those ideas he, he echoed to us. And so it was from that standpoint, it was Chinese, but the actual fighting was kickboxing. And at that time kickboxing really was the guys that were good at kick. And again, you know, the history better than me, but my experience in Tennessee was that the guys that had an actual boxing base, a real boxing base, and then they added to it kicks from Taekwondo and karate. Cause those are the kicks that existed at that time. And, um, you know, nobody, nobody knew about Muay Thai and I'm sure somewhere there was a Muay Thai gym. I'm sure somewhere there were other martial arts, but as a rule, karate and Taekwondo were the martial arts. So we, we all kind of had a boxing base and then we had this, uh, taekwondo and karate added to it, the kicks and what i also found later as i grew up and i was like in my 20s and i would travel around the south and i would fight in like smokers and in gyms and whatever because it wasn't that much professional fighting going on but but i would fight in these these you know competitions or you know gyms and things and um what i found was there were a lot of guys that just had the karate base or just had the taekwondo base and they would just get destroyed by guys that had the boxing base Mm-hmm. So it took a, but it took a really long time for people to figure out that we should, because even Chuck Norris, who, you know, of course, you know, I would never say anything bad about Chuck Norris <laughs> because he would know about it. Oh, he would, he, he can actually, <laughs> he's actually listening to this conversation right now. Yeah, no, no, I love Chuck Norris, but um, even Chuck Norris at the time, like he combined, you know, Kuk Sulwan, I think it was, or um, I'm Tang sorry, Tang Su Do yeah. and Taekwondo, you know, you know, and like even he didn't have, have a boxing base or he didn't talk about it certainly in his fighting. So, you know, so it's interesting. It took a very long time for people to figure out that that was the winning combination. But anyway, so we learned boxing and we could beat, you know, people would come in black belts from all over, you know, the state, other states would come and oh, I'm black belt and I'm this champion. And they'd get in the ring, we'd just decimate them because we just punch them in the nose and they'd never been punched in the nose before, you know. Exactly. And, um, yeah, so that's how I grew up. And so because of that, he laid down, David Collins was my teacher. He laid down the idea in my mind that martial art is a form of fighting <laughs> and you do it to be better at fighting and fighting is martial art and martial art is fighting. And so that philosophy just went with me. So I went to the military and, you know, I boxed in the, in the military and, you know, fought in a lot of smokers, maybe 22, 24 smokers, something like that boxing. And then um, I had a brief period where I didn't do martial arts because I concentrated on, on my university studies and I got back into it 
about a few years later and then leading up to 9-11 i was watching i i started watching the ufc videos there were like 10 of them that were available and i just watched them over and over and over ufc 1 through 10 and then um and i really got into it and i went and signed up for mma classes i took like one jujitsu lesson in manhattan i took uh, i signed, signed up for muay thai someplace but i did we didn't really learn very much i wasn't very um yeah, you know, it was a new world. I mean, it just the MMA changed everything about fighting. Like you have normal people today that don't fight who train at a, at a level 10 times higher than what professionals were training, you know, when I was growing up. Yep. It was just normal people. Like when I was teaching MMA in Malaysia, you know, many years after that, you know, I was teaching MMA in Malaysia. Kids would come in that had never exercised a day in their life. But when I said pull guard, side control, you know, you rear neck control, like they knew all that from watching. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, they're not perfect at it, but I mean, they knew what I was talking about. Whereas when I learned to fight, I mean, we literally, when we learned to stand, how to stand, how to hold your hands up, like none of us had any clue. Yeah. We had no, yeah, we had nothing. We, there was nothing to draw down. It's so hard to make people understand a world where nobody knew how to fight. <laughs> yeah, because when you, you were talking about, so the era when you started and how a lot of these karate taekwondo guys would step in and suddenly yep. have their world shocked yep. and rocked. And that's why pretty much the, I, I can confidently say, the only individual that was able to step out of that traditional world into the evolving world of kickboxing in the 70s uh, and have great success right from the get-go was Benny the Jet. But that's also right. because what people have to remember is he also started boxing when he was five years old. His yep. uh, mother was a wrestler and his dad was a pro boxer. So he was learning boxing and wrestling before he even started the traditional martial arts. And then even right. then, even when like he started doing these tough man competitions in the 70s and then the kickboxing and stuff, he obviously had to evolve his system. But that's why he was able to. But like, you know, uh, a lot of these other guys like Bill Superfoot Wallace even said he didn't like getting punched in the face. He had to learn how to box. That's right. Uh, The guy I was talking about, Jerry, the golden boy Trimble, who became very successful in Taekwondo in in the Kentucky circuit. His dad was actually the one that's like, well, if you want to start kickboxing, you got to learn to box. And he's like, the thought hadn't even crossed his mind. Really, It's like, oh, yeah, I guess I do have to learn how to use my hands. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It hadn't. They didn't know. And the other thing is because people didn't really fight like people didn't know that Taekwondo was not a lethal, deadly, you know, killing system. Right. You know, because because they could kick fast and high and spin and all. Oh, my God. And nobody can do that. And then but then they didn't understand that, you know, it didn't hit you hard enough to stop you because if you're doing point fighting that high Taekwondo kick is worth the same as like a bone crushing, you know, Muay Thai kick. Yeah, exactly. Um, or yes. even, you know, they don't even count low kicks and or uh, they don't count low kicks. Yeah. And it, it's funny, actually, uh, Speaking of modern times right now, the Olympics, this is the first Olympics with karate, right? So I happened to watch a little bit at the beginning of the Olympic Taekwondo and I have great respect for like high level Taekwondo and so forth. But the current status of it in the Olympics is is kind of sad. And it's not just me that thinks that I've, I've heard from high level Taekwondo people. They don't like where it's at. It's like a game of patty cake with the feet, right? And they can't punch or whatever. Yeah. But the great part is we now have for the first time karate in the Olympics and I was watching what's called the Kumite. So like karate point sparring, which is just so fun yeah. to watch because these guys are so athletic and uh, th- they can kick, punch wherever to the face. Obviously they have to control. But one of the first matches, a guy almost got knocked out because he ran straight into a counter right punch. 
And it's like, yeah, right. you're, you're going to have to, you watch these guys, you think, wow, they would do so amazing in MMA and kickboxing. And you're like, yeah, possibly. But they'd also have to adapt a lot and learn how to get, or hopefully not get punched in the face, but learn how to take yep. that full contact shot, which back yep. then was just like unheard of because you couldn't do uh, well, pressure testing. you couldn't testing. do a combination. Yeah, yeah, that you too. Do, so, so guys would argue with me and they still do. I get attacked a lot online, right? So I get attacked all the time. Well, you couldn't even do combinations. Like, oh, yeah, I do combinations all the time. Or three. I'm like, yeah, you, you could do a combination, but as soon as one of those punches land or kicks landed solidly, that was a point, and they separated you, which is different than what we were doing, which was real kickboxing. So, you know, I could, th- you know, throw a three-punch, six-punch combination, whatever, and, and you know, follow it with a kick or open with a kick. And, of course, it all counted, and nobody interrupted you or stopped you. And they could all be with power or two of them with power and one not with power, you know, but one, like, those point fighting type competitions they might be allowed to throw like you know a fake two punches and a kick and then throw like a real punch and or your kick and then it and then they separate them you know so it's a very different thing you're not getting hit multiple times which can still be an effective way to fight and we saw that even with like leota machida which unfortunately is a cop out for a lot of people like see it works well he's you know he's an exception but the thing is that kind of style can work but then what do you have to do right after that you have to move back out be guarded and be ready for the next thing, right? It's not the, you know, and typically it's they land the shot and then it's almost like they cheer for themselves. Like, yeah, it's like, no, if you do that in a real fight, you're going to get knocked out. (laughs) Yeah. I find like, like in Mongolia, I wrestle with a lot of judo guys and, um, and actually in other countries too, but I found that a lot of the judo guys are very good at getting the takedown because judo, that's what Mm -hmm. they do. And when they hit the ground, I can immediately reverse them. I'm not saying every time, but I'm saying frequently the guy throws me. And I immediately reverse and get on top. And it's because th- their mind is just so fixed on do the throw and stop. Right. Exactly. And it's like, okay, I got it. They're not thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. They're not thinking about it. Because I find that a lot. Of, I, I got this one one judo guy that I wrestled with a lot in Malaysia, in uh, Mongolia. And he was a national champion and competed internationally. And, he's, and he outweighs me by 20 or 30 kilograms. And, um, and every time he throws me, and I'll reverse him and I get on top and, you know, go for submission. And he's like, your Nawaz is amazing. I'm like, no, it's that you stopped fighting. You weren't <laughs> yeah. thinking. My, my, my Nawaza is just, I actually do my Nawaz. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Uh, yeah. So back to, back to the timeline. Yeah. It's the early 2000s. You're, you've already sort of gotten an interest in MMA. You've, ex- yeah. you've experimented with a few gyms. And then obviously, unfortunately, one of the most tragic events in our country, yeah. 9-11 happens. You yourself are a native New Yorker and you're back in New York at this point. You're yeah. working yeah. on Wall Street, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. 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 I was working in the financial industry and, um, I was in Manhattan the day of nine 11 and I just thought, you know, I died and I thought that the, uh, the white dust that was settling on all of us, I thought it was like uh, anthrax or some kind of nerve agent. I just thought we were all going to die. And so I went to St. Patrick's cathedral, couldn't get in, just sat on the, on the steps and just waited to die. And then I didn't die. <laughs> and then I yeah, said, well. yeah. I kept like I and it was funny too because I was like, okay, well, I guess I'll die now. Nope. Okay, now. <laughs> and then yeah, I didn't die. And then I decided that um, I thought about a lot of uh, dreams I'd had since I was a kid, and I go, well, if I don't do this now, I'm never going to do it. And so that's when I quit, and I went off to the Shaolin Temple because I'd been watching that TV show when I was a kid. That TV show was so instrumental in me starting martial arts, the the David Carradine show, right. 
as a lot of people from that generation, it was very influential. And you could say what you want about the show, say what you want about, oh, obviously there's, there's, uh, unfortunate cultural practices from that era, obviously yellow face, uh, with David Carradine not being Asian, playing an Asian character, but for all the negative things that people might want to associate with that show, some of the positive was two things. One, it it was the first opportunity for a ton of Asian American actors to have real, authentic roles in a series like real dramatic acting yep. not caricatures uh second it was the catalyst for so many uh important influential martial arts people to get into martial arts yes yes including yourself yep yeah i mean it's the same way that like when star trek turned 50 they uh they went and interviewed all these nasa scientists and you know 80 percent of them said that they went into science because of nasa because of uh watching star trek when they were kids you know, that is so cool. All, yeah, they were all like 10 years older than I am now, you know, so they grew up when then they went to college and they're all, you know, top scientists at NASA, you know, and they, and they all said, yeah, of course, Star Trek. Yeah, so the same thing with martial arts. Um, and uh, so that show was really influential for me. And then Pat Morita in an interview one time said that he invented the sensei character. <laughs> and and I really do agree. I mean, it, it very, I, I, you know, I would say 80% agree. I would say that probably Master Poe, was probably the first ever and he definitely influenced the uh the sensei the development of the sensei and i would say also that yoda i think predates does yoda predate uh no yoda would actually be 77 oh yeah he he outdates pat marita yes but not master poe yeah 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 but does does yoda predate no because yoda's not 77 because he's in the second movie oh very good yeah yeah yeah. i'm not sure if that predates karate kid but anyway i mean i give pat marita at least an 80 percent of that but master poe really was kind of the first first master but um we and we also had and again you know picture that world we only had we had chuck norris and we had the tv show kung fu and then Obviously, Bruce Lee posters were everywhere and everybody knew who he was. But, you know, he only gave us three and a half movies. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and also there were no DVDs and things at that time. So maybe you'd seen Enter the Dragon. Maybe you hadn't. You know, it was was, was really that. Maybe you had, maybe you hadn't. Maybe you'd seen it twice. It was rare even to meet somebody who'd seen anything twice, you know? Yeah. So Because people also have to remember, this was an era before home entertainment. VHS and Betamax didn't come out until the late 70s. And even then, it wasn't until the 80s it became really mainstream. And that depends where you were and, like, your your income and, like, what kind of accessibility you have. In fact, it's funny. I sometimes call you the Matthew Pauly on steroids. But uh, author and martial artist Matthew Pauly was talking about how – in a podcast recently, a lot of his first exposure, because I think he grew up in the Midwest area as well. It wasn't until the mid to late eighties that someone first got a VCR and they're like, what's this thing? And then they're like, Oh, we got to check out this guy, Bruce Lee. And so just a a whole different era that especially today's youth, it just has no idea what it was like. Yeah. In fact, the first video rental that I was ever a party to, because I didn't actually do it. We had a VCR that my dad bought like in the eighties, early eighties. And one of my friends from the karate school said to me, though, that's another funny thing. We called it the karate school growing yeah. up because karate meant martial arts. Of course. So one of my one of my friends from the karate school said, uh, can I come over and bring a movie to your house and watch it on the VCR? And I really think like he had explained to me what he, you know, what he was doing. <laughs> so it's this little square. It's got tape on the inside, but it's hard on the outside. It We're belongs put to it someone else. <laughs> yeah. But be kind and rewind. Yeah, because because we used the VCR for recording, you know, so I didn't know. So he came over and he brought Enter the Dragon 
and uh, and we watched entry. So I think that was probably the first video I ever saw that was that was rented. It was Enter the Dragon, and um, so anyway, so yeah, so 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 late nineties to early two thousand. So nine eleven happened. So I decided I want to go to Shaolin Temple because that TV show had just. I used to fantasize about it all the time because I used to think. Well, Cain's not Chinese and he's living in the temple. You know, I could be Cain. I could grow up in the temple, you know, and I was the same age as the child Cain. You know, there was another brilliant thing about the show was that they had both of his younger brothers playing him at two different ages and they would alternate. Sometimes, you yeah. know, they would show him when he's like eight years old and sometimes he was like, whatever, you know, teenager. And um, so it was cool. So it appealed to me my whole growing up because I was always the age of one of the, you know, what are the other? <laughs> You know, and, I'm and, turning and now, into David Carradine, but 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 now I'm like older than you know, quite Chang Kane, was. <laughs> right? <laughs> but uh, yeah, but anyway, so I wanted to go to Shaolin Temple, so I went online and started googling. I went, All right, this is insane, you can't go to Shaolin Temple. And I'd seen a um documentary about Peter Schneider because you know, I went to school in Germany, so while I was in Germany, I watched um, there's a German documentary about Peter Schneider, and and he claims to be the first foreign child to live at the Shaolin Temple. You know, and if he's not, he's certainly one of the few. And he and he's got a documentary about it. He spent like a year or two years at age thirteen at the show. Oh, wow! Temple. What yeah. what what year was this, or around what time? So, I saw the documentary in the early nineties. I'm not sure exactly when he lived there, but okay. But but he was probably an adult when they made the. You know, like by the time I don't, I don't know. I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know because somebody went there and filmed him, so they must have made it in real time. It must have been made in the early nineties. Wow. But uh yeah. His mom, I mean his parents must be the most amazing people. His mom had, <laughs> or the had worst. a contract. Yeah, or or they were horrible people. But yeah, his mom yeah. had a contract. <laughs> She's working in China and and she knew her son loved Kung Fu. So she arranged it somehow through Guanxi. Oh. And for him to live there. And for yeah. our listeners that don't know, Guanxi uh, literally means connection. It's the way of saying like uh for us, what would an equivalent in English would the be like connection? Thank you. Perfect. Yes. Yeah. So, so, so I'd seen that documentary and then, you know, 9-11 and all that. So I go, I want to go to Temple. But then I thought, all right, I don't know how to do that. So I go, all right. So I wound up, I totally forgot that I had a, a teaching degree. Well, there <laughs> I, you go. It's like, oh, yeah, well, what's this? Oh, I have a teaching degree. I forgot, you know, because I went to business school. And my mom had, had left instructions before she died. She said to my dad, the kids can study whatever they want but make sure they all get a teaching diploma just in case, because you can always make a living. And I never did used it. And I, I was literally, I was looking at jobs online. I go, wow, teaching jobs are like the easiest jobs to get overseas. And too bad I don't have a teaching. Degree. I'm like, wait a minute, I got that diploma. I really did, like, I'm literally in the back of my closet. There was this diploma for that's, teaching. Like, that's like when you find 20 bucks in a pocket of a pair of pants yeah. you haven't worn in like six months. You're like, oh, yeah. sweet, 20 bucks. Yeah, it was like that. It's like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. I went to England. Yeah. So, so I took my diploma and I went to Taiwan and I taught school in Taiwan, started training Kung Fu in Taiwan, you know, with like real Kung Fu teachers. And I was really excited, you know, about everything. And, and, I, and I was in Taiwan, which really isn't one of the best places for martial arts. It's really good for people that want to research old Chinese martial arts that disappeared from the, from the mainland. Like mm -hmm. if you're really into that. And I have two friends that do that. One of them is Wandering Warrior. He's on Instagram. And then the other one is Hisham, the monkey master. But Hisham, I mean, he dedicated 20, 30 years of his life to living in Taiwan, tracking down these really old masters. The lie that is told in all the other countries is actually true in Taiwan, which is 
there are these masters who were the last inheritors of their style. They fled China and they, and they you know, lived out their days in Taiwan. Well, that's always the joke we say about how to make a yeah. fake martial arts style in America. It's like they it's almost like you go to school for it because they all follow that same yeah. thing. It's like it's so mysterious. It's so ancient. Yeah. It's so rare. It's we're the last and in, hit. In, uh, we inherited the style. It's not even yes. found in Asia. But as you said, in Taiwan, that is the actual case. It really once is again, true. For, for listeners that may not be familiar, obviously a lot of turmoil in the mid-20th century, post-World War II, post-Cultural uh, Revolution, a lot of these Kung Fu masters from China were forced to flee because as part of the Cultural Revolution, uh, intellects were persecuted as were traditionalists in a sense, martial arts being one of those. So rather than face the communist regime, they fled to other territories, which is why we have such a large Chinese diaspora spread throughout Southeast Asia. So a lot of these masters fled to places like Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore, Malaysia, or even America, but a lot of them did settle in Taiwan. Yeah. And then and then in Taiwan, what happened was they, they, they kept the traditional culture for a time. And then, of course, Taiwan is one of the Asian tigers and the economy you know, exploded. And then people immediately began having only one one child or two and then putting them in tuition because it became very competitive for jobs and things and education. So martial arts just dropped off like participation dropped off tremendously. So he shan, like he uh, Zhang Yusan, he goes to. I mean, he finds these old, old masters, and very often he really is the final inheritor of their style. He's the lat, like they'll say to him, I haven't had a student in 20 years, but I'll teach you. And then, like, uh, the master dies because these guys are all old, you know. Mm-hmm. So, like, when we did a documentary, we did the Kill Armand TV show in, um, in, Taiwan in 2010 or 11 and one of the masters he was like the last inheritor of I don't know the crane or something and he was in his 90s and they could they basically went there and filmed him but um you know I mean he was in it and he died shortly after that so so now it's 10 years later again so I don't even know how many of these guys are even alive, but, but anyway, so that's what goes on in Taiwan. So if, if that's what you want, you can still find it in Taiwan, a wandering warrior. He's there and he's trying to find this stuff and, and, um, and we'll see how he goes. He's, he's, he's young. We'll see. Um, but anyway, I'm really proud of him for trying. And, uh, but Hisham, I mean, him and his wife spent 30 years just tracking the, like going to old, like, um, antiquity shops, and finding scrolls and <laughs> like crazy, like mark martial arts relics that nobody knew what it was. Nobody, nobody bothered to read it. It's sitting on a shelf somewhere and he found it. And then he and his wife translate it and they're recording it. And it's just amazing what he's done. But uh, so anyway, I'm in Taiwan. So I go to um, what happened first. My school arranged for me to train with an old martial arts master. He wasn't very old, but he was, he was, like probably in his fifties. And he was a student of one of those old, old guys who had come, come over, you know, with Shen Kai-shek. And, um, and I did his Kung Fu for a while and I went, yeah, I really kind of don't like this. Like when I saw what real <laughs> Kung Fu is, I didn't like it because yeah. I grew up believing I was doing Kung Fu. Yeah, David Collins told us we were, but what we were doing was so different than what happens in China that I was like, okay, I don't like this. So then I was in Kaohsiung and I went in a park and I saw this master with his students. They were running up and down the stairs in the park. They were like 
like multiple staircases, like all the way up this mountain and they run all the way to the top and they had to like run and kick at the same time and sidekick it and, you know, do all these things up and down the stairs. And I went, Oh, that's awesome. I want to do that. That's more physical. So I went up to that master and he didn't speak English and I couldn't speak Chinese yet, but I made him understand that he should write his phone number on a piece of paper. And I got my school to call him and he arranged and he picked me up at the, the train and I lived with the team and I trained with them. And I said, I really like this. So I went and I started training with them every weekend. And then I just decided to quit my job and move to the city where they were and find a job there. And I found a job like literally three, 400 meters away. It was insane. Oh, wow. I went to a job agent. They go, we have nothing right now. They go, the only thing we got is this one job that nobody wants <laughs> it's in, this, <laughs> in this remote corner of Kaohsiung County. And I go, oh, my God, that's 400 meters from where I'm training Kung Fu. <laughs> so I took it and I was really happy. And so I stayed in Taiwan. I was really happy. I was training with this master, Wang, uh, Wang Laosher. And then uh, um, one day I'm riding my, my motorcycle and I saw people fighting in the park. And I stopped and I ran over to join. And it turned out it was fighting Tueso, like two-handed Tueso, which apparently is almost not done anywhere else. It's it's done in Taiwan. It's the norm in Taiwan, but in China, apparently they mostly do one hand Tueso from what I understand. But in Taiwan, they would do two hand Tueso and it was, and they were like really fighting. And I said, wow, this is awesome. So I followed him. So he would train me at like 5am and then 6am I had Chinese lessons. Then I worked. Oh no. And then I went to Kung Fu and then, and then I took, took a nap. Yeah. The Kung Fu school was right next to where mm -hmm. I was working. So I'd train at the Kung Fu school, take a shower, eat, sleep at the Kung Fu school, and then go to work and then teach till like, you know, evening. And I was doing that every day. And then another day I was driving and I saw these boys limping and I said, well, they must be injured from martial arts. So I followed them. <laughs> I followed them. And we found another martial arts school that had training at night, nine o'clock at night. So I'd go there after my my teaching. And I did that for, uh, for about a year and a half and I learned Chinese. And then, and then that's when I went to the Shaolin Temple. Right. And so at that time, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it, it was another kind of era when, because obviously in the early 90s, even that young kid you were discussing, and then that's when Matthew Pauly went. But I believe then they were kind of closed off again, right? Because you were the first one to have been there in quite a while. I was, yeah. It's, yeah. So first of all, there was some kind of a feeling that there had been, I kept hearing rumors, because you know, they would tell you about every other foreigner that existed, right? Because everybody knew and there weren't that many. There were two German brothers that had been there for several years, and I've never since really been able to track down who they were. I just knew they existed, and I saw one of them on the street one day, but I didn't talk to him. And there was um, there's a Mexican monk that he's actually an ordained Buddhist monk, but he has two shifus. He has one for Buddhism and one for Shaolin, and they couldn't ordain him at Shaolin, so he was ordained by the other one. But he was flying back from mexico and spending like several months a year in the temple and then going back and he'd been doing that for years and years um i met a random british guy that was living in one of the schools for like a year and he was around for a few weeks and he let me also this is 2003 so nobody had a cell phone we had no way to communicate with each other and so just we bumped into each other in the street and the problem was they were um, dem demolishing the village around the shaolin temple so mm -hmm. the government was forcibly moving everybody. I didn't know at the time, but it was because they were going to build the Shaolin World Heritage Site, which is basically like a huge Disney park now. Oh, so yeah. They, 
Yeah. So every day, like where you were living, you didn't change. Like we changed houses three times because they demolished the first two houses. So each time that happened, it became really difficult to just, just bump into people on the street. And also they kept moving us further and further away from the, the temple. Like when I first got there, I slept actually in the temple in the monks quarters. Then they moved me to a school that was just outside the gate. So every time I came out that gate, there was a chance I was going to bump into people. But then they moved us like a kilometer away. Then it was like three kilometers away, you know, and then it became ridiculous. Like you're not going to just randomly bump into people anymore. And then SARS started and, and, and it was a lot like the COVID lockdowns. And suddenly there were no foreigners. And uh, one day I bumped into two foreigners and, and they said, yeah, well, there's probably like six or eight foreigners total out of like 65,000 students, you know, estimated at the temple. There were like probably eight foreigners there at that time. And uh, we all went to S baby which was the uh, the fast food before D Dinko's <laughs> opened, Dinko's or whatever that was called. Yeah, S-Baby. And so wow. we all went there. Yeah. And so and another thing that's probably hard for people to imagine or even experience, especially for our American listeners, is China was evolving so much at this time. The economy was booming. Things were changing, as you literally just said, day by day, year by year. So it, it's funny because I was in China from 2010 to 2016. And occasionally I'll talk to people that were there like around that era, right? And they'll say, well, that's not how it is. I would live there. And I'm like, well, when did you live there? They're like, well, I was there in, you know, I visited in 2002. I'm like, China 2002 compared to 2012 is just oh, like two, two no, completely no different places. Yeah. Yes. And so uh, so at the actual temple, uh, our listeners are probably going to want to know, what was the actual training like at that time? So what were you when doing? I lived there in 2003, I actually lived in the monk's, monks quarters. And then they decided which monk was going to be my teacher. And so um, Shi Hongfu became my teacher. And so inside the Shaolin Temple at that time, there were, I believe, 60 actual monks. And of 60 actual monks, about 12 or 14 of them, I don't remember, you'd have to read my book. Um, there's 12 or 14, I believe, were religious monks, what they call Buddhist monks, religious monks, and then the rest were martial arts monks. It seemed to me that most of these monks owned sort of a franchise that they had the right to like make a school outside the temple and be affiliated with the school. And I think that's why there were estimated 65 schools, because I think each school was probably associated with one of these monks. And then they would kind of have his picture on it. And, you know, he's the monk of that school, although maybe he only goes there once in a while to check the training and all that so that's how i was so so i lived with them a few days then he moved me to his school there were about 60 students living in the school there were three bedrooms there were 60 students one outhouse toilet with one hole that was full and oh boy it was really disgusting there were no showers there was no running water and there was a cook and his assistant and um we and and the monk didn't live there and he would just he would usually oversee one of our training sessions every day we'd have like five i think training sessions and he'd oversee usually one of them and then me and my two training brothers we had our own bedroom the three of us and we had special treatment my two training brothers were chinese they'd been living there for a long time but they were uh the leading students so me and them two lived together trained together and we had one session per day inside the shaolin temple like inside the actual Whoa. temple yeah so that was and do you have cool. any i forget do you have footage of that 
I have photos. I this even before I had video. I have yes. photos, but I don't have. Yeah, photos. that's what I thought. Yeah, because yeah. uh, that's a rarity now. I mean, even for example, uh, we went to the Shaolin Temple together, which I'm sure we'll yeah. talk about here in a bit. But like, I was so disappointed that, in the sense, you uh, when we went, you were only able to go inside that one main hall, and even then, you can only walk so far before it's all blocked off, and even then, yeah. you can't take pictures of the famous area with the footsteps and of the murals and so forth. And we couldn't even walk in the pagoda forest at that time. Yep. Which yep. was for yeah. me, having seen Shaolin Dude. Temple with Jet Li, I was like, oh, when I want to go check out the pagoda forest. And nope. When I slept in the temple with the monks, I ate in the monks' cafeteria. That was insane. Ooh. That was insane. Yeah. You know, big cafeteria just – all monks, you know, and of course, it's not heated or anything. It was so cold. And we just ate, you know, Manto. And the other funny thing is when you visited me in the temple, I don't think they were eating the same thing we did. When I lived there the first time, what they ate mostly was parched potatoes. So they like, if, if you picture taking one of those carrot scraper things and you yeah. like, you know, you know, scraped potatoes, you know, until they were just like little curly cues of potato. And then they dump boiling water over it with MSG. <laughs> they don't actually cook it. They just dump boiling water and MSG over it. And then they serve that right. to you in a big, huge pile on your plate. And it was that and Manto. And that was like the main thing that they ate. No, we actually, when we were, uh, you and I were there. And so for reference for people, we were at, once again, nobody was actually at the temple really at that time, but we were at one of the, or the closest temple schools, temple schools like so yeah. off campus. Right. But our food, and I'm a weirdo. I like cafeteria food. I, I was quite happy. We got a big bowl of rice and like a big vegetable goulage type thing. However, yeah. we would have to buy meat in town because that's like the yes. first day we went to go buy meat because everything we ate was vegetarian. So, but otherwise I was quite happy and content with the food. Yeah. Yeah. The food was so much better when we were there in 2013. Oh, by the way, you know, I got a publisher that's interested in my book about living in a sports university. So it's being edited right now and uh, we'll go to the publisher at the end of this month, but there's a chapter in there about our experience at Shaolin Temple. And um, yeah, and I talk a lot about that, like about how the food was better and it was dramatically cleaner and there was air conditioning and a lot less people living in a smaller space, but, uh, but it still wasn't nice compared to like training in Thailand or something like that. Of course not. Of course not. Yeah. So you, you do the Shaolin temple and I know then obviously yeah. SARS happened. And then I remember you had to flee to Hong Kong. Uh, yeah. And then from Hong Kong, from that point, you kind of just explored all over Asia. So yeah. you spent, and, and unlike other people that, and people love to say, or, you know, they, they like to claim they live somewhere. It's like, oh, well, how long did you live there? Oh, well, you know, I visited for a few weeks. It's like, no, no, you lived and trained for years at a time in multiple yeah. countries doing uh, a lot of like what we'd call ethnographic research almost, uh, exploring the culture, exploring and training the martial arts. So you were in Malaysia, you were in Thailand, you were in Cambodia, yep. Vietnam, the Philippines, all of these places for extended periods of time, some of yep. them years. Yeah, yeah. The way I describe it to people, I say, look, you know, I traveled when I heard about a martial art that I thought was interesting. I would go there and I would start to learn it. And some of them I stayed a couple of days, maybe just shot a story for a magazine. And with some of them, if I liked it, I stayed, you know, a week, months, sometimes years, you know, it just depended what how interesting it was to me. Cause it's another thing that I've been criticized for. There are people who say, Oh, this guy comes in, he takes a few pictures and he leaves and he calls that. I'm like, that's not actually the case. I was seven years in China. Mm -hmm. You know, I was twice at the Shaolin temple and both times was for, you know, a couple of months. I mean, that's not, that's not a tourist. 
you know, and, I, and yep. granted, Matthew, Matthew Polly was there for years, and I really respect that. But but what I did is not, you know, minimal, you know. No, not at all. And in fact, uh, this is the period of time where you did end up with your video and you started your web series, Martial Arts Odyssey. And remember, this was right. a, a period of time before people were self-producing, self-distributing, right? Like YouTube was in its infancy at this point, uh, as was kind of your personal the fact that this was the beginning of being able to distribute your material online for free by yes. yourself yes and yes. so in this i mean you have so many great episodes actually sometimes when i'm just bored i'll go onto your channel and rewatch the episodes because it's a great insight into all these different countries and their martial arts culture and even if it was something say like for you okay i I know this isn't going to work for me. It's, uh, I'm not necessarily that interested in learning this long term. You pay respect to the masters or the shifus or whoever. You're, you're open-minded. And then if it isn't something you need to learn or if it's going to help you, you kind of move on. But yeah. you're still always very respectful. And you and I have talked about a lot of these episodes and so forth. But uh, so for people that want to say, oh, well, you didn't stay that long. Just when you have like hundreds of episodes of a, a series like this, I'd say that's pretty authentic in, uh, you know, your your stay and your travels and your training in Asia. Yeah, like like I stayed with Kruba. I mean, Kruba is one of the most important people, you know, that I ever trained with. I mean, you know, there's probably like five masters that over the years have been my the most influential. And one of them, one of the most important ones is Melvin Yeo, who's my MMA teacher. And he's you know, 10 years younger than I am, which is also really funny when you start getting older than your teachers. You know? And that was but in Malaysia, correct? That was in Malaysia. Yeah. Right. And that's still my home gym and that's still where I fight, you know, and, I, and when I can, I fly back to Malaysia, I teach wrestling and, you know, MMA wrestling and, you know, and then I fight when I'm there and, um, and I love it. But, um, you know, he's one of the ones and David Collins, of course, my first teacher is really influential. I'm getting ready to fly to Tennessee in a couple of weeks to, to go to the 50th anniversary of the school. That's so awesome, yeah. man. That's so, that's so cool. I, I hope you document a lot of it because I'd love to see that. Yeah. And Kruba was uh, a monk that um, lived in Thailand that I saw him on TV and I said, I got to go study with this monk. And he lived you know, at a monastery up on top of a mountain in Thailand and taught Muay Thai. And so I went and lived with him. And that's how I learned Muay Thai. And that's how I learned to speak uh, Thai. You know, I learned from him. And um, I stayed with him for months, you know, but I went back a number of times. I always visited him over the years. And um, and then I went to Cambodia, I spent a year in Cambodia, you know, and Patty Carson became one of my really important trainers. He was my boxing coach and a lot of my pro fights up until, up until he left Cambodia, which was probably 2014 or something, 15 up until then, every time I had a fight, I would fly to Cambodia and do my boxing with Patty Carson to prepare for my fights. You know, so he's, he was a really influential teacher. He really improved my boxing. And then, uh, but as far as like the authenticity and the time I spend with these different teachers, Saigon would be a really good example. I stayed in Saigon for a, a bit less than a year. I think I was probably there like nine months um, or six, maybe six months in Saigon and six months in Hanoi. But anyway, Saigon, I went and filmed with, you know, a Tio Lam master, which is uh, the Vietnamese Shaolin Kung Fu. Mm -hmm. I said Voco Twin, a Voco Twin, but maybe I did that up in Hanoi. I don't remember. I did uh, some other martial arts, Muay Thai, boxing, uh, oh, Vovinam. I was going to say, I would have loved to see you do the Vovinam scissor kick to the, someone's head and like fly through the air. That would be <laughs> impressive to see the Brooklyn that's, Monk do that. 
that's not happening. Yeah. <laughs> but, but just from an authenticity standpoint. So I'd spent a long time in Saigon, but I only spent a few days with each of those masters right. because, you know, it was interesting to, to report on it, but it wasn't something I wanted to study. I don't know if somebody wants to criticize that. I guess they're free to do that, but it's just kind of a weird thing to criticize. Hey, you know what? The internet gives people power to do a lot of things. And as I say, God bless them. Yeah, right. So, you know what else? If they enjoy criticizing me and I enjoyed living in Vietnam and training in martial arts, by golly, we both got what we wanted out of that arrangement. Exactly. So, and I think an important thing to note is, uh, especially in Cambodia, you also studied the traditional Cambodian martial yeah. arts and were kind of in the forefront of getting, uh, giving exposure to the outside uh, giving exposure of Cambodian martial arts to the outside world. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I went to Cambodia to, to study Bokator, which is their traditional martial art. And the other art that they practice there, which is much bigger, is uh, Bradal Saray, which is similar to Muay Thai. So, mm -hmm. um, so I went there and I was the first foreign student of Bokator. I wrote a story for, I believe, uh, Black Belt Magazine. And I think it was the first story ever published in the West about book tour and then that ushered in just this wave of like tv coming from japan and finland and you know all these different countries america they all came there history channel to do documentaries on um on book tour and i worked on a lot of them you know mm -hmm. and um yeah book tour was um yeah that's one of those very significant experiences that i had during these 20 years yeah, and you are officially a uh, black belt in that system, correct? Yeah, yeah, black krama, black krama. There we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah black krama, black belt. But um, but mine is in specifically in Bokator fighting. So the master broke down the style because most, the vast majority of them are doing. They they have to do all the animal forms, and then there's the weapons forms, and there's fighting. But fighting is like a small part of what they do. And so right. with me, like he knew I wasn't going to sit through animal forms and weapons. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and he just kept teaching me to fight and teaching me to fight and then uh, and then uh, there's three components to fighting there's, there's Bokator, there's Bradal Saray, which is kickboxing and then there's Japap which is wrestling so he sent me off to the, to the paddy fields where I wrestled in the wrestling village and um, Patty Carson worked on me with my my Bradal Saray and you know I trained in that and then I was going to Thailand at the time training with um, crew Pedro in Muay Thai Sangha and crew Lek in Bangkok for Muay Thai Chaya and the book tour master recognized the connection. Oh, and also Muay Boran up in Surin, Thailand with um, Ajahn, Ajahn Sokchan. And um, he kind of recognized what I was doing there as being, because they recognize a connection between say Muay Boran and book tour, although they don't want you to say that. Of course. Uh, yeah, that, that there's a connection, but they recognize similar. But anyway. Yeah. Martial arts came, politics exist all yeah. over the world. Yeah, and then and then I would come back to Cambodia, and of course they would have me fight and spar and everything. And, you know, of course there was no question that that what I was doing was was working, you know, so. Yeah. And then so from there you end up in Malaysia, you become a pro MMA fighter. So you had a really strong yep. base at this point uh, of what I would say is like authentic fighting arts. I mean, your first system under uh, – uh, Mr. Collins, Collins, yeah, was uh, does he go by Sensei or Sifu? That's what I was hesitant. Sifu. 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 So Sifu Collins was a full contact uh, system 
uh, like what would be almost like full contact karate or full contact kung fu, as you said. So that was your base. Yep. You box in the army. Then you're going around Asia. Yeah, sometimes you learn some of these more traditional styles that don't really suit you. But you had done extensive amounts of Muay Thai, Southeast Asian yep. kickboxing, uh, grappling and wrestling at that point. So when you went into MMA, you had a, a nice solid foundation already. But then you found an actual MMA gym that kind of helped you hone this all together and then start competing, correct? You sort of. So I um. So, so you're right. So I went into it where I had a very strong boxing base. My Muay Thai has never been great. Um, you know, I'm better than some people. You know, I never thought I was good enough to fight pro in Muay Thai. So I never did. But I just trained all the time. But my boxing was good. And I could kick. And um, so so when I went into my first MMA fight, everybody, all the media, you know, everybody knew who I was. I was like the celebrity, you know, fighter. They're like, oh, the Black Belt Magazine columnist, Antonio Graceffo, Martial Arts Odyssey, he's going to fight in this tournament in Malaysia. And it was a big deal. And they all knew I was a striker and they and they wrote about it. Everybody's speculating. Oh, he's going to come in there with his boxing and let's see what happens. You know, can they take him down? You know, whatever. And I think a lot of people don't know I can kick too. So I think a lot of them were even wondering how I was going to deal with the kicks. But if they watch Martial Arts Odyssey, they knew that, you know, I'd been getting kicked all the time. But anyway, <laughs> I went into that first fight and the, and the opponent on paper, it said he was a black belt in jujitsu. And I thought, oh my God. You know, I don't know how to grapple. I had very little grappling, a little bit in Voktor, a little bit in Japaporan. You know, I did one episode of um, like serum wrestling in uh, Korea. And I go, um, oh, man, I don't know how to wrestle. I don't know how to grapple. I better stand up and box this guy. So the bell rings and I go to punch him. And I'm just going to like, I'm thinking I got to hit him really hard, you know. And he immediately tries to take me down. And the only thing I learned, I did a, uh, warm up for the, or what do you call it? Like a fight camp to prepare uh -huh. for the MMA. I did it at K1, K1 fight factory in Southeast Asia. And, um, we had one month to work on it. They go, listen, you can't learn to grapple in a month. They go, we're going to teach you something called a sprawl. <laughs> <laughs> teach you something called a sprawl and something called the side control. And that's it. So, so the guy tries to take me down and I sprawled. And I wound up on top and I'm trying to stand up. It's, I don't know if, you, if it comes through in the video, but I keep trying to stand up and he keeps pulling me down on top of him. But meanwhile, the judges are like, oh, he's, Antonio is controlling the guy. He's keeping him on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. I don't know if you, I don't know if you heard me counting, but I did over a thousand reps. <laughs> yeah. That's a deep burn. It's a deep burn. Yeah, it was pretty funny. So, so I wound up on top and then I just kept hitting him a bit. I was only hitting him so I could stand up. <laughs> Right, exactly. I could, dude, yeah. let's stand. Let's stand and trade blows, man. But they're like, "Wow, that's great!" Ground and pound. I'm like, "Oh yeah, yeah, that's what it was. Just ground and pound." <laughs> yeah. But then, and then uh, I came out of the cage. So I won that fight, and then I fought another fight the same day, and I lost the second fight. And it was like a perfect situation because if I'd won both fights, I would have had a perfect record. And if I'd lost the first fight, the second fight wouldn't have happened. But instead, I won the first one, lost the second one, which said to me okay, you can do this. You know, you just need to improve, but you can mm -hmm. do this. And I got out of the cage and somebody offered me a chance to stay in Malaysia and be the bodyguard translator uh, for this family. And somebody else offered me a spot on an MMA team that happened to be close to where this family was living. And the family gave me a driver. So I went and moved wow. in with this family. And, um, and the father wanted me to build him a gym in the house and train him every day. And I built a gym and he didn't 
use it, but I did. So I trained every day in the morning at the house. And then in the evening, the driver would take me to MMA school. And then I just started fighting all the time as, as many fights as we could get. And, and I won all my fights. Awesome. And that's, that's like, uh, the dream right there, a gig like that, where it, you're pretty much getting paid to just train, work out, fight. Uh, I, I miss those times. I know it's, it's, it's madness. You know, it's like, what's, what are the odds of that happening on Long Island? I would imagine very, yeah. very, minimal. <laughs> very, very minimal. So you're there for a few years, you're doing a lot of these MMA fights and then eventually you end up back in mainland China. Yeah. Yeah. Because what happened was I was living in, so I, I stayed with that team in, in selling ore for a while. And then we did a TV pilot. They had me host a TV. I wrote a TV pilot for like the ultimate fighter in Malaysia, basically, but we gave it a different name for copyright reasons. And I was going to be the the coach. And, and so we had the selection. So all these fighters came to do a selection. It was like a whole day thing where you just train them and train them and train them and see who's going to quit and then pick people out for the TV show. And the show never got picked up, but one of the guys that made it in the selections was named Melvin Yeo. And he goes, oh, I own this school down in Johor Bahru, Malaysia called um, uh, Ultimate MMA Academy. And we have our own fights and we have our own cage. And we have our own fights. And it was really hard to find fights back then. And I'd mm -hmm. heard all these rumors that there was this thing going on in Johor Bahru, like, oh, the closed doors, underground. But it wasn't. They were professional fights, but they were just doing them in their own. They, they just produced them themselves. So he invited me. So I moved into that academy and I slept in the academy on the floor. There was no bedrooms or anything. I just slept there and trained for about a year and and fought you know and he made all my fights for me and um every that that gym didn't have a syllabus people came in and you just trained and if you knew something you could teach me and if i knew something i'd teach you and that's basically what we were all doing and all the pro fighters would circle through there so everybody who came in i'd say to them do you know wrestling and and they would teach me well i know these two moves you know and that's how i learned to wrestle and it was and somebody else came and i learned from judo people, jujitsu. There was a Japanese jujitsu black belt. Wow. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I also want to qual qualify something. Earlier when I said that my opponent in my first fight had the black belt in jujitsu, it turned out later that it was Japanese jujitsu. I had a sneaking suspicion. That I that, yeah. I had a sneaking suspicion that's what you were going yeah. to say. But yeah. Yeah, yeah, I just want to put that out there. I did not beat a jiu-jitsu black belt. Let's just be clear. <laughs> no, yeah, and but, that's uh, not to take anything away from what is uh, Japanese jiu-jitsu because there are some very effective Japanese jiu-jitsu systems. But, yeah. <laughs> but in all actuality, as far as like a full competent grappling type system, most of these traditional Japanese jiu-jitsu schools are kind of a mix of, for example, judo takedowns, maybe a little bit of the submission work on the ground, but also they usually implement yeah. a lot more of the flowery Aikido type techniques. Aikido type things, yeah. So yeah. We had a guy in our gym in Johor Bahru. This is another crazy story. There was a jiu-jitsu master, a real jiu-jitsu master from Japan, like a like that grew up with the fighting culture of the real fighting jiu-jitsu. So he was in Malaysia and he was like a thousand years old. And... <laughs> <laughs> like his last group of students that he promoted to black belt included my friend Ken. And then the master basically, I don't know if he died or if he just got too old and couldn't teach anymore, but basically Ken was like one of the last black belts ever promoted under this guy. So they're not, they're not making more of these. And Ken would come in the MMA gym. He could outbox all of us the same way Leota Machida does. He just moves so weirdly that you can't predict how he's moving. You can't hit him, and he can hit you anytime he wants to. 
And when we try and take him down, we could never take him down because he just had such weird movement. And when you got on the ground, he had, you know, hundreds of submissions. It was insane. I'd never seen in my life. And, and it's the only one I've ever known, you know, the real jujitsu. An anomaly like that. Yeah. Because yeah. and here's the deal. Unorthodox technique and stuff like that. It's not just because, oh, it's some secret ancient martial art. This guy obviously trained his whole life like a madman too, which is what a lot of, unfortunately, traditional martial artists don't want to believe you have to do. It's like, sure, some of these traditional unorthodox techniques can be very effective, but this guy also grew up in that environment. He honed these skills just like, you know, for uh, uh, the Leota Machida type are one – out of a million, you know what I mean? And they're very special, but it takes a lifelong dedication to these kind of arts. Well, one of the commonalities, if you look at Stephen Wonderboy Thompson and Leota Machida, in both cases, I believe their father is their primary Mm -hmm. teacher. So, yeah, mean, they're so, uh, Ray Thompson, Stephen Wonderboy Thompson's dad was from that era of the seventies, like the beginning yeah. of kickboxing. He started off yeah. as a Kempo, uh, uh, karate guy that, but not American Kempo, Japanese Kempo, uh, right, if I'm right. not mistaken. And he was, you know, uh, a kickboxer during that era. And it, all of his kids started martial arts at like, I think age three. Yes. So, the, so people always say to me, oh, those guys are proof that traditional martial art works. I said, no, that those guys are proof that if your father is a master. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you're yeah. forced to, you have no yeah. choice from age three. And from age three. You like it or yeah. not. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Ken, Ken was one of those. I mean, he trained his whole life. Also, Ken was built like, like, like an underwear model, you know, he's just like all muscle, no fat anywhere. And it was all like, like lean, like, good muscle for fighting you know he wasn't like a, like a heavily muscled like 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 a wrestler or something you know it was like like he just had like a perfect everything about him was perfect but the funny thing was that he couldn't fight professionally because he didn't have it was really weird he could spar all day but he couldn't go into a professional fight just because uh, he couldn't handle the pressure yeah, or yeah, yeah and yeah. you know what's funny is so my sensei uh peter sugarfoot cunningham has talked about how, you know, he came up in the Jet Center, which is maybe one of the most famous kickboxing gyms of all time, but especially in America. And this was very similar in that sense in the 80s. All the top guys from all over the world were coming there. The Dutch kickboxers, you know, uh, guys from uh, Europe, uh, uh, other parts of Europe, Australia, like Stan the Man. And that's how all these guys became so great because they were sharing with each other and learning and fighting the best of all these different systems. But my uh, sensei has talked about how there were some guys in the gym and he'll tell us lessons about these guys that all day long, they would spar with these top world champions and just school them. But it was one or the other. They The few times they tried stepping into the ring, they just failed miserably or they just didn't have the nerve to go in and actually do it. But in the gym all yeah. day long, full we're talking not like light sparring, full contact. They would just make mincemeat of these guys, but just didn't have what it took to actually uh, go into the ring. Yeah, you know, you know it's funny, like, because in Mongolia, um, those guys all have, you know, s- severe uh, wrestling base, you know, and then mm-hmm. and a lot of power and they're just fearless people. They are literally, they are, they are every stereotype you have. I mean, it's just true. They're just so fearless. They, they, they don't feel pain. They just fight. I mean, it's unbelievable. They love fighting. They got everything going for them. And when I was trying to, um, you know, get in shape again and start fighting MMA, I was only, 
uh, wrestling with them. Then I was only kickboxing with them. And of course they could beat me. And then one night we started doing MMA and the guy threw a punch and immediately instinctively all that Sanda training that we did together at the sports university, you know, throws the punch, I immediately duck the punch and I'm behind him, mm-hmm. you know, and it hit me. I'm like, cause, cause I was really losing my self-confidence. I'm like, these guys could beat me wrestling. They could beat me kickboxing. Well, who, who the hell am I saying I'm a professional fighter, you know, but I forgot that's not MMA. And then once we started MMA sparring, I went, wow, this is like a lot more even, you know, because, because it's putting it all together and having the strategies to put it all together. Yeah. And that's, you know, that that's also part of it is when you begin competing and you begin doing like real fighting, real martial arts of this sort, you're going to have off days and stuff like that too. Cause even training with Sugarfoot, you know, we'd have these times where, uh, boxing gyms would come to our gym and it's like, all right, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're sparring with this gym today. We're doing straight boxing and my under Sugarfoot, my boxing has improved tremendously, but I'm still not, I call myself, uh, a decent boxer now. Right. But you know, when I'm going against guys that are just straight boxers, man, I'll get schooled and I just get, I'll get so defeated. But then I'm like, wait a minute, the second we start adding in kicks, yeah. I know that I uh, can comfortably handle myself against the best of the best. So, yes. but that that's all part of the evolution of a martial artist, the growing, the learning. You have to get your butt kicked once in a while in order to come back even stronger. Yeah, 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 that's that's very true. And um, yeah, so so it's really interesting. So I go, and it made me confident that I could go around the world, even here in America. Like I'm on Long Island right now, and there's... Um, something like 12,000 wrestlers on Long Island, right? And so, like, I would assume if I walked in an MMA gym, there's tons of guys with wrestling base, and they're all going to have better jiu-jitsu than me, like everybody, because my jiu-jitsu level is zero. And <laughs> I'm not sure you've heard of this number. It's zero. It's zero. It's it's the Kung Fu Panda level of jiu-jitsu. Um, <laughs> they, look, they got together and decided I'm not even allowed to wear a white belt. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> you'll get this white belt when you earn it yeah, but uh yeah um no but uh but but i could still teach them because 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 it's mma and mma is a different thing again but uh but yeah but uh so i was in malaysia and my body was just getting i was living in the academy of training two three times a day and fighting constantly and sparring constantly and my body was just breaking down and i just couldn't do and remember i was 45 years old at the time yep. and uh you know, and so it's just my body was just breaking down. I said, all right, I got to get out of here. So I started looking for jobs. I landed the job at Shanghai University. So I flew back to China to teach. Went that first year, almost didn't train. Like when I met you, it was the spring of 2013. And so I basically hadn't really trained since I've been in China. And it's just getting back into training. And the night before we had our first fight together, or a couple nights before, I was in that MMA gym and uh, somebody took me down and my ankle rolled. So the night that we fought, I don't know if you remember this, like I had to be helped into the ring. Like I couldn't step up to get into the ring. And when, when the bell rang, like I was, I was kind of holding on to the rope and the bell rang and I just immediately ran across and I, and I grabbed you and it wasn't cause I was trying to take you down. It was cause I wanted you to hold me up. <laughs> <laughs> and so we talked about this a little bit before, but we had some technical difficulties. So I'll bring it up again. At this point, I was at the Shanghai Sports University, but same thing for me. I had, after I left Thailand, I was in Guangzhou, China for two years, predominantly working. I mean, I still worked out in the gym every day, and I'd say I averaged once a week some sort of martial arts training. But for what 
people also don't understand, especially at that time, it's not as straightforward as you go to China and there's a Kung yeah. Fu school on every corner. It's not so at all. It's so funny. People, people think if you go to China that you can just like find martial arts schools and start training and it's like the exact opposite. Yeah. No, you can find the Taekwondo. Place, yeah. 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 And so I, you know, uh, I would train, I'd say on average, like once a week, because what would happen is I'd find an instructor, we're training a few times a week, then they disappear, then I don't get to train for a while. So either which way in Guangzhou, I focused on working, I was just working like a madman, it's a great place to make money. Uh, But, you know, my my martial arts training was minimal, I moved to Shanghai specifically to the sports university. So I had been it was my first time like training full time again, since Thailand. And, uh, I was supplementing my training at, uh, an MMA gym. I was going once a week just cause I wanted to do some more Muay Thai style. Little did I know I actually ended up getting roped into signing in for the, like the MMA classes. And I was like, all right, whatever. Well, you know, we weren't really training, uh, any sort of grappling. So I was like, that's fine. And I'm not going to be an MMA fighter. So what it was, was we had a gym fight night or what some people call smoker fights. And, uh, we discussed this a little bit before this MMA gym was challenged by a Wing Chun school. Uh, and even though I was not a member of this gym, they're like, yeah, yeah, we want you to come because we have all these fighters and we need everyone to fight. And I was like, all right, cool, sparring. You know, it'll be a good experience. Well, MMA gym doesn't show up. Excuse me, the Wing Chun gym doesn't show up. So all these people come to watch and it's like, well, we're doing a sparring event. We'll just have everyone fight each other. So uh, I fought uh, this German kickboxer that they had, a real tall kid. And so, you know, I did a three-round fight there. And then it was your turn to do MMA. But nobody was willing to fight you, correct? Yeah, yeah, there was nobody to fight me. Yeah, so they say, hey, AJ, why don't you fight Antonio? And I was like, oh, a kickboxing? No, MMA. I'm like, MMA? What the? And everyone's like, yeah, come on, come on, come on, do it. And I was like, well, hey, let's give this a shot. But And then you always love to say how it was pretty much the most boring sparring session you'll ever watch because, uh, one, we were wearing gloves. Uh, Boxing gloves. Yeah, kickboxing gloves. And so you took me down. I pulled guard. And that was pretty much the extent of both rounds. Yep. That was yeah. it. Yeah. And, and the thing is, and the thing is too, cause I'd rolled my ankle. So like when I was on top of you, I couldn't turn you cause I couldn't put any weight on my ankle. And because of the boxing gloves, you just basically pinned my, my hands and just nothing happened. And then he reset us. And then another time, I guess we were in standing and you just like trapped both my arms, you know, against your body cause of the boxing gloves, we just got to say anyway. So, uh, but from yes. that point, and that's, that's the great thing about martial arts is it can be like, Hey, this is a, a gym sparring event. I've never really met you. We fight, we punch each other in the face and then we become great friends afterwards. Yep. Yeah. And the other funny thing was you kept talking about this place where you were studying Shanghai university of sport, but I, it didn't register quite what you were saying. I wound up getting admitted to Shanghai university of sport independent of that. Then that it is- hit me. Mm-hmm. Then it hit me. I go, oh, I bet this is where AJ's training. <laughs> and sure enough, because when my first semester there, I went and just straight up paid to train in Sanda. And so it included some language courses, but I was just straight up uh, like a uh, short term or semester long uh, student. I don't know, exchange student, I guess you could say. But then that next year, you went into the PhD program and I right. went into the foreign master's program. I got the little scholarship to actually do my master's in what would be traditional Chinese sports. Uh, which didn't really work out like I had hoped for or what, you know, I was promised, but I still trained there for what would be another uh, year, year and a half. Uh, but you but, had to hire private tutors. Exactly. And that, was, that was the insanity. My, my new book talks about all the, like how hard it was. We were at the number two training facility in China and yet it was really difficult to train 
and we both wound up hiring private teachers to train us and then picking up other training when we could. It was a little harder for you too, because you weren't living on campus. So I was able to get a lot more like pickup sparring and stuff, but yeah, we had really similar problems though. Well, that and uh, my Chinese was extremely minimal at that time, whereas yours was much more, uh, a much higher level of fluency. So, and when I say minimal, mine was very, very bad at that time. So it was hard for me to, I couldn't, when I would go to my Sanda classes at that time, because I didn't really start learning Mandarin until I got to Shanghai, I had no idea what was going on. You know, right, right, I, right. no idea. And uh, Joe Lauscher, my, Joe my instructor, she was funny. Uh, you know, she would, she would kind of say all this stuff and then look at me and then be like, you know, like, doi doi, or like, yes or no. I'd be like, uh, uh, doi doi, hao, hao. You know, I had no idea what they were saying. Uh, but mo- predominantly she most of the students. foreign students. Well, I think, I think she kind of warmed up to me, but my classmates were all very nice to me. You know what I mean? Uh, yes, I could tell they were making jokes about me sometimes because I didn't understand. But for the most part, especially like Liu Xing, Liu Xing was very uh, uh, nice and supportive and helpful as he could be. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, obviously, Jeff, who became my private instructor and very good friend and who I consider my Sanda coach. But he was the one student that could speak English because he would start off in our class every day. Cause I was part of two different classes. That was the only way I could get five days a week of training. Uh, and once again, talking about the politics of training in China, when I first arrived at the sports university, I pay my entire tuition. Right. And I say, wait, before I give you this money and I had already been in China for two years. So I knew how things work and I'm handing over a big giant wad of cash. This would be about like 2000 us dollars. And I'm like, wait, before I hand this to you, I want, as we've just signed and all the schedule says, I want to make sure I get to train Sanda full time, five days a week. Correct. And 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 then uh, Mr. Chu says, yes, yes, that's correct. I pull back. I'm like, now, once again, I get to train five days a week on this schedule you're showing me right here. Correct. Yes, that is correct. Hand him over the money. Does whatever. Pulls out some paperwork. He's like, so you will be allowed to train two days a week. And I was like, wait, 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 what? The? And I just start screaming and making this huge fuss and holler uh, until finally he agrees to what I had just paid for. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And so That's exactly what happens. And even that, then it turns out that he had no authority and he couldn't coordinate with the teachers and he couldn't make them take you. Exactly. Which is why yeah. Joe Lauscher had to accept me into both of these classes. Uh, yep. Cause I was part of two different classes. I was part of the freshman class and the sophomore class. And I just must've won her over somehow. Uh, but in one of those classes, I noticed every day we'd start. And then as soon as we began, one of the uh, members, uh, a, a short little fellow would leave and he'd go and spar with the professional teams. Because as you've written about and talked about, we as foreigners uh, couldn't train with the professional uh, Sanda team. And so he would go over there and he was a sparring partner for these guys, including the girls team, uh, because he was like so much shorter and smaller. And I used to watch this guy's technique. I'm like, he's phenomenal. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to ask him to be my coach. Cause as you said, that's what we had to do in order to get the training we really wanted. So once again, I speak very minimal Chinese at that time. I'm like, okay, I gotta, I gotta try to find my words. What am I going to, uh, say to him? And I'm like, oh, 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 ni hao, uh, uh, I couldn't even say like well she won like I hope I was just like uh ni ni uh ni shi wo de lao shi hao bu hao you know you, you know and then he just says okay I teach you no problem and I was like what you speak English and he's like yes I go to Wall Street English <laughs> and and Jeff was just a very smart individual because he'd only been at Wall Street English for like six months so it was a great 
uh, experience for both of us. He, I was his first private student. So he got a lot of experience practicing his English and teaching. And then I obviously got to learn Sanda. So it worked out really well for me in that sense. And you also would eventually get to know Jeff and train with Jeff. Yeah. So, so what happened to me, so my, my path was a little different, but I stopped into the university to ask if I could pay money to wrestle there. And they said, Oh, your Chinese is really good. You have a master's degree. I said, yeah, they go, how would you like to have a full scholarship for, for your PhD? And I said, um, thank you. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Yes. Why? Yes. Thank you. So yeah. So I got the scholarship to go there for the PhD and study wrestling. And then I wrote up my research proposal, which included, you know, and I'll wrestle every day with the team and that'll be part of my research and blah, blah, blah. And they approved it. And then I show up at team training and they go, no, you can't wrestle with the team. And um, I go, no, it's my research proposal there. No, no, you can't. And I go back to the student foreign student office. I go, I want to wrestle with the team. They're like, well, you have to pay money. I go, no, I have a scholarship. That's part of my research and you have to let me do it. And they're like, nope, you have to pay money. So I want to pay in money. And then, they wouldn't let me go with the Greco-Roman team. So I had to go with the Shuaijiao team, the Chinese traditional wrestling. And they only trained twice a week. So now I'm only training twice a week. I go, that's no good. And then they let me take, uh, I had to take all PhD students, take Sanda Goodo. So I took that. That was once a week. And then um, what happened? And then the money I paid, somehow they credited some of it. So I got to train with Joe Larcher in the Sanda class. And then... A lot of people told me, they said, well, once you're here, if the teachers like you, they'll just invite you to their classes and you don't pay money. So the Sanda Godot teacher immediately really liked me and he was the head of Sanda. So he invited me to all his classes. And so that rounded out my schedule. So I had, although I was a wrestling major, I had two wrestling per week and about three to five Sanda classes per week. They're probably like five. Awesome. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. in my second year, when I became like an official student, I was only supposed to be allowed to do Sando once a week at that point. So yeah. this is when I'm on a scholarship. And, I, and like you, I was like, uh, no, that's no good. But luckily, because I had that previous semester. And as I said, Joel Lauscher seemed to like me because I showed up, I showed my schedule. But then, you know, I asked, uh, is it okay if I come every day? And she just kind yeah. of like shook her head. She's like, yeah, it's okay. And I was yeah, like, perfect. Yeah. And I just did, even though they told me I couldn't. And Mr. Chu was like, no, you can't. I was like, F that. That's why I'm here. Yeah, she was. Yeah, I, she was really good. Um, she was a good sound off fighter. And she was a decent. She was a good teacher. She was not good at teaching the whole class because she wasn't good at engaging everyone and like watching what everyone was doing. But mm-hmm. if she came over and taught you like that was always good, you know. And it was so, you could I, tell I, she was I, a very good fighter because she was very tall. So her style yes. though was also very specific to like a tall fighter. You can tell she had a very good like lead hand and sidekick, but yep. you know she wasn't going to be the most fluid boxer, right? She knew how to use her yep. height to her advantage. And uh, I also and don't that's, really that's a, remember teaching a lot of grappling at all. Precisely. I, I, she, yeah, she mainly did we, kicking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We did a lot of what I would call what I like to specifically call the shui fa. So like catching the kicks and sweeping as opposed to like shui jiao and like actual wrestling and takedowns. We did not, in fact, almost none, but we did a lot of the catching of the kicks and sweeping in that sense. So I did get a good foundation in that, but I really didn't get that extensive of an experience in doing actual what you might call traditional Chinese shui jiao. Yeah, so it was good having the background, you know, because I got to do Shui Jiao twice a week with the team, and then and then I had all the the Sanda classes. And Zhang Laosher was the head of Sanda, and he was really good. And he taught the all PhD students have to take Good Do, which is 
sanda that includes knees, elbows, and uh, ground fighting submissions and stuff. But it's not MMA, but it's it's a very limited form of MMA. It's probably, I don't know, maybe it's more similar to like Sambo or something. Yeah. So I took that with him, and he really liked me because he recognized instantly that, you know, I knew. You know, when, when, when we did ground fighting, he had me teach the class. And when we did takedowns and things like takedown sparring and stuff, he would always ask me to, to, to show the, you know, show them how to do it. Um, yeah, because, because the, the wrestling levels is so much higher when you've actually studied wrestling or Shui Jiao, and then ground fighting levels can be so much higher when you're coming from MMA or BJJ or something like that. Or of course. Yeah. And so at, at this point you've done martial arts your whole life, but, and, and I know you always jokingly kind of say you found wrestling so late, but you really, at this point, yes, you're still an MMA fighter. But I feel like you you became a wrestler. Is that fair to say? Like you identify as a wrestler? Thank you, AJ. <laughs> it's nice to have somebody recognize that I'm a wrestler. Yeah, no, yeah, I really did. I really felt like a wrestler. But it's a little bit unfair because I didn't go through with all those all those guys went through or these guys even here on Long Island. Yeah, I didn't right. wrestle in high school and all that. So I feel a little funny saying I'm a wrestler. But yeah, I loved it. When I was in the MMA academy. I just, every teacher that came, I asked them to teach me their wrestling techniques and all my fights were like 100% grappling. Like, <laughs> like I almost didn't throw any stand-up punches or kicks in any of my fights. And, and look at it this way. So just because you took a different path doesn't mean yeah. you've devoted yourself to wrestling in both yeah. the physical standpoint and uh, from a scholarly standpoint. You've done so much research for the sport of wrestling and so I think it's very fair to say you're a wrestler. I think it's also, I just want to let people know that, yes, most of your fights may be grappling, but we've sparred many a time and you have one of the hardest right hands I have ever felt. So the man can punch people. Don't be fooled. <laughs> well, it's, it's so funny because, you know, people forget that I boxed, you know. Exactly. And, and I won almost all my fights on TKO because if it went to a decision, I, I, I'm not the kind of fighter that's going to win on points usually. But I won almost all my fights on TKOs, you know. And people forget that. And then even in MMA, most of my wins are at TKO. But pe people forget that, that that I can box or I can at least punch really hard. So uh, at this point, you you do something that I think is pretty phenomenal. You earn your PhD in Chinese. That's what people forget. You weren't doing these courses in English. This was 100% yeah. in Chinese. You had to speak it. You had to write it. You had to do everything. And so you earn your PhD in China uh, and then... From there, uh, I know you kind of you were still floating around China for a while. You went to India and were doing research and exploring Indian wrestling. But yeah. how did you eventually end up now in Mongolia? So yeah, so I was in India twice and and wrestled there, and I have a coach there that I really like. And then um, then I decided to fight MMA again, and I flew down to Malaysia. I had two fights. I was so it was twenty nineteen. I had two two pro fights in Malaysia. I was really fat. And I was like 40, <laughs> what, what, how old was I? 52, 53 years old. And I won both my fights. And then uh, I got back to China and I was like, I, I hate China. I'm leaving. And I went to Mongolia to wrestle because it was one of those things that was on my list that I always wanted to do. So I went to Mongolia to wrestle. And I said, I really like it here. And I want to stay in Mongolia and I want to learn the language. And I want to really learn Mongolian wrestling. Because like I said, like, most of these arts, I want to go train them and try them out and write about it, you know, research it. But it doesn't mean I want to dedicate a lot of time. Mm -hmm. But Mongolian wrestling was one where I went, okay, I, I actually want to do this. And the interesting thing is I've been in Mongolia now for two years and about 80, 90% of my training has been some combination of like MMA and freestyle wrestling and then just a little bit of um, 
Mongolian wrestling. And then the, my last six or eight weeks before I left just now, it was all Mongolian wrestling. Like I finally mentally was at a place and also that the opportunity was there that I said, I'm only going to do Mongolian wrestling because I really, really, really want to learn it, which I never felt that way about Shui Zhao. I never felt that way about most of the other forms of wrestling except Greco. But uh, I, I, uh, the first day of training, the coach had me fight his son and <laughs> we did. Um, and his son is exactly my size. That's the other thing is I cut all this weight now, you know, so I'm, I'm walking around at 80 kilograms. And I got to say, you, you look good, brother. And I know you cut out a ton of those sugars. Uh, yep. And cut that's what I sugar. People ask me sometimes, well, how do I do that? I say one of the key things, you got to cut out the, the processed sugars and all that stuff. And it just, I think you're the textbook example yep. of you went from, you know, obviously weight that fluctuates, but you went, I had never seen you with abs like I've seen you now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep. That's true. And, and, um, you know, I'm 50, whatever, I'm going to be 54 in a few weeks. Yeah. But, you, uh, you're, you're, you're looking lean and mean, my friend. So I want to congratulate you on that. Thank you. But it's also funny because a lot of people go, oh, I want to do what you did. Like, like, how did you? And I'm like, but you have to understand that I was really, really muscular. You know? Yeah. Oh, 100 percent. It was underneath yeah, it all. Yeah. 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 People, people do. I mean, I know you know that, but most people don't realize that they thought I was just fat. I'm like, no, in fact, even that fat belly was really hard. You could punch it. But anyway, <laughs> and you did. <laughs> but uh, yeah. but but yes. So in in, in uh, Mongolia. Oh, yes. My coach. Uh, Gambold coach so he brings his son um uh Bulgendorch and he goes okay I want to see what you can do so he made us fight um freestyle wrestling uh catch wrestling and then uh Mongolian wrestling and we, and the first day we trained like really long like an hour of each of those so like a three hours of wrestling and um freestyle wrestling he's definitely better than me. I mean he's also half my age and less even he's like 25 years old but he's better than me, but it's like 15, 20% better, you know, but it's enough that we're close enough that we can train together. And then catch wrestling, obviously I was better. And then, um, Mongolian wrestling, it was just no contest. It was like literally anything you wanted to do. You could just do it, you know, mm -hmm. cause I didn't know anything. And then, and then, okay. And then we came in the next day, he goes, what do you want to do? Do you want to do half and half? I said, no, let's only do Mongolian wrestling. So I'm not that, that interested in improving my freestyle right now and, or, or doing catch where I'm going to, you know, beat your son. I go, no, let's just do Mongolian wrestling. So I really want to learn it. And by the end of the like six, eight weeks, I saw a huge improvement. Yeah. Nice. That is so cool. And I, I mean, I'm yeah. glad that, I mean, that's why you're there. You're there yeah, to do that. There. You're there to, you know, you're learning the language. And that's the other thing people don't realize is, uh, so you, you have a level of fluency in so many languages. And I, I always love to show off for you, but obviously you grew up speaking English and Spanish. Uh, yeah. And then you also learned Italian and then you went to school in Germany. And so you also speak fluent German. So those four languages you speak fluently, obviously, right? English, Spanish, uh, Italian, and German. Is that correct yeah, to say? Well, well, not Italian, but yeah, yeah. I speak Italian, but not, not, not at the same level. I speak Spanish at a much higher level because right. I never studied in Spain, in uh, Italy. You know, I studied in Spain. I never studied in Italy. So right. I just and learned then, it from my family. From the Asian languages, uh, very comfortable to say you are fluent in Mandarin, or as you, you've always jokingly said, no foreigner ever becomes fluent no in Mandarin. Fluent. Yeah, yeah but as, as, as close <laughs> as you can get. But then you're also very uh, conversational in both Khmer and Thai. So right there, yeah. we're at seven languages. And as I always tell people, I've seen you 
not just speak little things like, hello, how are you? I've seen you converse in actually all seven of these languages because in Shanghai, it was so international. And especially when we were students at the sports university, I remember the first day you uh, talking to one of the German students in German. And then we had, uh, uh, oh, what was the, 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 the Thai kid's name? I forget his name now. Oh, Atiwat. Atiwat. And then you went up to Atiwat and started speaking to him in Thai and he was so shocked. And then we had... Uh, Sophia, the Italian girl at the MMA gym, and you were speaking Italian uh, with her. And then obviously I've seen you speak in Chinese numerous times. We've been in Thailand together also. Uh, there's all your videos where you're speaking Khmer with your Cambodian martial arts brothers. But one, one thing people forget about is the time and effort you put into these languages. And you show that on social media as you're learning Mongolian now. It's hundreds, if not thousands of hours of lessons and listening. And it's always an inspiration for me because uh, I try to, you know, study my Chinese 15 minutes in the morning, first thing every morning. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm not very good with languages, but I always think, man, what would Antonio do? So sometimes <laughs> in the afternoon, I'll put on a Kung Fu movie, uh, you know, one in Mandarin, obviously, one that I'm familiar with so that I can try to listen and learn the dialogue. And I'm just always very inspired by uh, how much time you devote to learning these languages. Oh, thanks, AJ. Yeah. And then Mongolian is kind of a shame because we were under lockdown for most of my time. So I didn't go to school very much. And then when lockdown led up, I went to school for, I believe, 16 consecutive weeks. Uh, and then I just came home now for a break. And then when I go back, hopefully I'll pick up more more classes. But it was really helping by the end, particularly then I was only doing Mongolian wrestling with coach who's English. He, he doesn't really have much English. And um a lot of the coaches, though, they all studied in Russia. So they speak to me in Russian and Mongolian mixed. So, you know, I had Russian in school, but, um, you know, I don't speak it very well. I would like to improve my Russian because it would be useful in Mongolia. But, you know, I'm concentrating on learning Mongolian. Yeah, one one thing at a time, my brother. But uh, I'm, su I'm super excited to see where things, especially now that everything's opening back up, right? So, you know, for example, for me now, it's been almost two years since I fought because of COVID. And Jesus. so... Yeah, I know. So I'm, there's, you know, I've, I've got my eye on the prize. I have a few more things I want to accomplish in kickboxing. And then as I always say, I want to finish off my kickboxing by going back to Asia and, you know, doing a final thing there. I'd love to go to Cambodia and train Pradal Saray and have like a proper, you know, Pradal Saray fight. That would be great. But then I will definitely be coming to Mongolia to see you because <laughs> uh, it looks like a beautiful country. It looks like a, they're just beautiful people. And I really want to experience that culture and the food. Yeah. Yeah. It's all meat, all meat and dairy. But uh, if you come to Mongolia, I mean, like they'll strike with you too, man. They are, they're tough and you could help them a lot with the technical striking and, and uh, technical kicking. You know, a weird thing is like, they never practice their kicks. <laughs> it's like so yeah. weird. Well, they I mean, when you fights, they don't practice. Yeah. Like, and trust me, you got like people, people have to, to know and people kind of <laughs> same thing with like how much hour, uh, how much time you put into learning these languages. Sometimes people will see the way I train and move and they'll even watch some of my fights where I win and I'm dominant. And they're like, yeah, well, that kind of style, you know, takes up too much energy. And I'll just pause and I'll, and like, you have to train really hard to fight that way. And I look at them like, yes. And yes. your point, well, you, you know, it's, it's hard to last that, that way a whole fight. And I'm like, but you just watched the fight. They're like, yeah. Right. And I'm like, and right. I lasted that way the whole time. They're like, yeah, it obviously works. <laughs> it, it, it works. And so I obviously train really hard. Right. And they're like, yeah. I'm like, yeah, so what's AJ, your point? <laughs> I was going to tell you, I've improved my kicks a lot. I started during the lockdown. I started doing slow, very, very, very slow 
kicks. Mm-hmm. You know, just standing on one foot and just practicing sidekick, round round kick, spinning back kick. Um, and uh, I've been doing it now for almost a year, doing these very slow. The whole routine takes about an hour. And it's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's helped my kicks a lot, a lot, my flexibility too. And the funny thing is something that we both have gone into in the last few years, separate from each other, but we are both big yogis now as well. Yep. We love yoga, both of us. And it's, it's helped improve my martial arts practice and I'm sure yours as well, but we're, we're getting towards the end of this. So I want to ask you a final few questions. Uh, sure. And my sister made barbecue. She made cold oh. barbecue, and I get to eat that when we finish. Oh, yeah. That's what I'm talking about. First of all, all your food pictures in New York are uh, making me super happy for you, uh, <laughs> but also really wanting to be there. But so being that you're one of the most well-versed people I know in going to Asia and training martial arts in these other countries. So if you can get one, give one bit of advice to people perhaps interested in following the same sort of path that you and I have done, but you much more extensively than myself – what would that bit of advice be for people that I, want to go? I think, you know, you got to decide what you want. And if you want kickboxing, Thailand's going to be the place where you're most likely to just land, find a, you know, a school, live in that school and train, you know? So if that's what you want, that's Thailand. If you want wrestling, Mongolia is wrestling. Mongolia is MMA. Mongolia is Sambo, Judo. You could do all that in, in Mongolia. You can't live in the facilities, but you could rent an apartment or, or a hotel pretty cheaply and, and train there. The only thing is you're not going to get very technical instruction, if any, but you mm-hmm. get unlimited sparring, you know, and training. Um, if you want um, China, you know, if you want the Shaolin experience, go. Don't let anybody tell you not to go because people are like, oh, it's not authentic. I'm like, well, it's more authentic than not doing it, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah so yeah so if you want the shaolin experience and also that's turnkey because you could just book it online basically oh yeah combinations meals training and just fly there and do it so it's cool you know so it just depends what what you want you know but everywhere in asia other than that unless you do like a turnkey like going to tiger muay thai in thailand or going to shaolin in china there's um there's not too many live-in training options in asia and you have to make it yourself. And so you like on a short time frame, probably not great. Like if you flew to Vietnam and, and you were just going to be there for 10 days, I don't know that you'd even find like good training in China. You wouldn't, you know, you know, yeah. you have to make and so it. Yeah. I think that comes down to, and we kind of did a whole episode on how just to pick a normal school for yourself. You have to do your research. Yeah. Uh, well-versed, you know, know what you're going into and then really just devote yourself to it. And I like that. What you said about the Shaolin temple is like, you know, don't let people deter you. And guess what? I, I love that. It's more authentic to actually go and do it than to not do it. So yeah. yeah. And yeah, then I, I think- get that criticism too. They're like, Oh, it's not as good as the, the temple was in the 19th century. I'm like, Oh, well, well they didn't have that option when I looked online. <laughs> the yeah. time machine was broke, yeah. uh, broke down. So we couldn't, we couldn't go back, but maybe next like, time. Is that when you trained there? <laughs> <laughs> Did your instructor train there? Because, uh, wow, he must be very, very old. Yes. But on that note, thank you so much for coming on here today. Thanks, AJ. Oh man. It's, it's been so great catching up and maybe even once you get back to Mongolia in a couple months time, we can, we can do another episode, but, uh, it's been a yeah. pleasure talking to you, my friend. And, uh, I can't wait till I get to see you again 
in person. Hopefully, yeah, me too, in the man. near future. I want to see you now that, now that we're both really lean and doing yoga. It's pretty funny, man. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm really looking forward to training together. But now I'm like dramatically heavier than you are. So this this is true. Like, like yeah, when yeah. we when we did our sparring sessions together, we were we were, close. we were pretty close because yeah. when we did our that very first fight night, I was at my biggest. I think at 183 pounds. I like now, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah, between eighty and ninety kilograms. Yeah. yeah, and I now walk around. For example, like when I finish a workout at one hundred fifty-three pounds. So I'd say my walking around weight's like one hundred fifty-five. Yeah, I'm so like a lot heavier. Well, I'm yeah. eighty kilograms, so you know I'm probably like twenty some pounds heavier than you. But anyway, but anyway, yeah, my friend. Yeah. All right, I will <laughs> Take see care, you soon. AJ. Peace, brother. Okay, bye bye.